so good to be back here uh, with the North Wake family. Um, if you're new here, I do want to kind of give you a heads up. If you weren't here when I, when I was, um, I just want to warn you, I cry, I yell, I move around a lot. I'm kind of like the anti-Larry. So <laughs> I told him earlier, I said, if he's like the easy listening pastor, I'm kind of like the driving too fast down the highway, need to turn down the radio, windows down kind of pastor. So uh, hopefully it'll be a little change up for you today. <laughs> but as, uh, as George said earlier, my name's Josh Reed. I'm one of the pastors along with Larry Line, who also was sent out of here of Oaks Church Raleigh. And it's one of the uh, privilege of being a church planner, being raised up from in this church and then sent out. I'll give you a brief update because I'm long-winded and I don't want to waste word time on that. But at the same time, uh, I do want you to know kind of what your prayers and uh, finances and, and hopefully uh, your interests are going toward. Um, about a year or so ago, about 15 months, we started with about 12 people in a living room just praying and begging God to give us direction and where to go and uh, basically where we can find our niche in a city that has a lot of churches on every corner. Um, but we really sensed the Lord sending us to Raleigh. And I didn't know why at first, but it became clear once we moved down there. We began surveying, talking to people. There was a ton of apartments, like a lot of apartments in this area. We we're in about a six-square-mile radius, and there's about 65, 70,000 people in a six-square-mile radius in North Raleigh. And what we began to run into, we began to notice kind of three pockets of people emerging that really aren't engaged. Um, certainly the marginalized and poor. This is typical really in any community because in America we do a good job of tucking that stuff away. But it's there. And they're real people just like you and me. And maybe you've experienced that kind of marginalization and you always wonder, where's the church? Um, so that's the first part. The second is internationals and refugees. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of refugee students, internationals coming, needing to learn English, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, that's a second group of folks. And a third group is, uh, in many ways, what we're calling uh, young professionals who are upwardly mobile and don't know where they're going. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting, eclectic group of people that the Lord has dropped us right in the middle of. And even amongst people who go to church every day or every Sunday, what we're finding is a paucity of biblical knowledge of simple things like John and John the Baptist not being the same person. Somebody's been in church their whole lives. We're just seeing a sincere lack of discipleship taking place so that really the authority isn't the word of God in people's lives. It's feelings, it's experiences, or traditions. We just do this because that's how we've always done But if we're going to actually see some change happen in our neighborhood, we sense what God's called us to is to really seek to unleash a disciple-making movement in our area and really across the city. We've got a couple of amazing stories uh, of people coming to faith in Christ, of seeing this, the love of God abound in community groups. Troy and Gail High, who was here for some 17 years leading a community group and their neighbor just kind of peeking in on their lives, peeking in on their community group saying, I ain't got whatever y'all got. Got all kind of intellectual arguments against Christianity, but he couldn't deny the love that the Spirit of God was forming in, a, in this community of people, and he surrendered his life to Jesus. We've got seen some uh, other folks come to faith. we also seen some incredible heartbreaking stories. Um, ministered to a guy, shared the gospel with a guy, said he wanted to change, wanted to, wanted to 
wanted Jesus and came coming around being faithful in a lot of ways, but couldn't kick um, some of the demons, the alcoholism particularly, and continued to show love and minister to him, but calling him to faithfulness and accountability. And about a week ago, or I'd say about three weeks ago, uh, turned his back on Christ and said, I'd rather have this. It's heartbreaking. But the Lord's at work. He's, uh, he's more than tripled our little small congregation. Uh, people are engaging in prayer, solitude. Uh, uh, last week, we had about half of our church engage in just a half day of solitude. You see this in Jesus' life, just to retreat for a half a day, just to be alone with Jesus, just to be alone with the Father, just to be alone with the Spirit, just to be alone with God. So that we followed up, but Jesus retreated not just for the sake of retreating, it was always to engage. And so this past weekend, we went out, or yesterday, we went out and engaged our city just with the gospel, prayer walking. How can we serve you? Engaging actual real people, not concepts of people, but actual people. And so God in his kindness was just allowing us to really um, be the hands and feet of Jesus yesterday and continue to do so. Uh, pray for us. We've got a lot of challenges. We need to move to a Sunday morning deal. We've had at least 30 people, no joke, 30 people say, Sunday at 430 is weird. That's just weird. And um, I know as much as I want to push back against such a consumeristic statement, <laughs> uh, it's the reality of the culture we live in. And so we're putting flesh on the word, and now we're just trying to figure out what clothes to wear. So help us and pray for us in that. Uh, but more than anything else, pray for us that the Holy Spirit would underwrite our prayers, would underwrite the proclamation and word and deed. Um, the people's lives would be changed forever. And that's really what this text today opens us up to. I had a buddy say, Josh, I just want to be a fork in the road for people. And the Spirit of God just lodged that into my heart and said, that's it. God, that's it. I want to be a fork in the road for people. Now, if you're new here, you're not a follower of Christ and you're exploring the Christian faith or something, and you're like, man, what's this guy talking about, church planting? Like, you plant vegetables and gardens and stuff. I get it. Like, I never heard of church planting when I came here either. But I'm starting to realize what I think it actually is, is it's a very nice way of kicking people out of your church. It's like, hey, <laughs> these guys are nuisances, you know. They raise a lot of questions. <laughs> Let's just send them out of here, you know, kind of give them a pat on the back. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, we miss you guys. We miss you guys so much. Thank you for supporting us. Um, please, please pray for us. We are, we are in desperate need of it. But if you know anybody in the North Raleigh area who is not connected to a church, who's not a Christian, um, who maybe just is sitting, just simply attending, that's what we're there for, um, Lord willing, is to unleash a disciple-making movement. Come see me afterwards and let's talk. Uh, so as we dive in, let me pray, and we will cut to the chase here in Acts 5. Father, we pray for your kindness to abound to us now, that it might lead us to repentance yet again, perhaps maybe for the first time for someone or to the, for the millionth time for someone. God, we live by mercy alone. And so grant us mercy to hear your word, dig, dig holes into our ears, as the psalmist says, that we might hear your voice. And God, let none of us leave unchanged, that we would just go out in the parking lot and throw this stuff up, go back to our regular scheduled program. But God, that it would sink down into the depths of our soul and animate our very lives, God, as we leave here. 
Spirit, we trust that you would empower me to preach with liberty and freedom. And let this word that you have so eloquently and beautifully written just blow fresh into our lives today. That we might be on mission every second. That we would never cease telling of the glories of Christ. We ask this in his great name. Amen. Now, we got a good piece of bread to chew on today, so we're going to have to chew a little faster than I, I had hoped. So you got to listen fast, all right? I'm picking up the next portion of the book of Acts that you guys have been walking through. And as Larry said, Acts, even though it says the Acts of the Apostles in the front, really, really a more appropriate title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit because he's the main actor in the book here. And so today in Acts 5, we continue looking at the work of the Holy Spirit as he moves in and through the church. And from starting with the programmatic verse of this whole book in, in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. The context we're in today is we're still in Jerusalem. It hasn't moved beyond that yet. But you start to see a little bit today of, of it starting to touch into the surrounding areas. And the church, in essence, was turning the city of Jerusalem upside down. But not in looting but in love, not in destruction, but in restoration. Because that's what happens when the church of Jesus Christ takes the mission of God seriously is they begin to turn cities upside down in restoration. They had been filled with the Spirit, and now they were filling Jerusalem with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the city was a buzz. Simultaneously, it was doing two things. It was making disciples and making enemies. And that's what true gospel ministry does. If you're truly proclaiming the gospel, one of two things is eventually going to happen. You're going to make an enemy or you're going to make a disciple. And that's tough to hear. I'm not saying your goal is to make an enemy. But if you're proclaiming the, 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 all the gospel, the hard truths and the, and the good parts, <laughs> it's all good. But you know what I mean by that. One of two things is typically going to happen. And that's exactly what's happening in Jerusalem. And so I believe that the main point of this text today is that as simply as the believers walked in simple obedience to the commands of Christ, the Holy Spirit supported their prophetic witness in a myriad of ways. And we see it clearly in this text in two ways, signs and wonders and an endowment of boldness in the believers. And it serves to show that Jesus is Lord and that all other authority is subject to him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He loves and delights to make much of Jesus. And so the main point that we need to take away today is this, that the Holy Spirit will support the mission of the church when the church fears God more than man. He will. He absolutely will. The Holy Spirit loves to do that. He will absolutely support the mission of the church. He'll support, when, he'll support you with God-appointed measures when the church fears God more than man. And here's my hypothesis that I'm working off of today, is that the majority of us suffer from the fear of man. Taking a stab in the dark, but I know myself well enough, and I know other, I've talked to others long enough to know that we fear, we fear one another, one another's opinions. Or the flip side of it is we long for each other's opinions to fall freshly on us. We want the praise of man. We're addicted to it. That was actually 24 years before I came to faith in Christ is what I was. All the things that I engaged in in my life, the things that just disgusting prior to coming to faith in Christ and such, it wasn't because I was addicted to those things. It was because I was addicted to the praise of others. 
And I would just do whatever it took to get it. It's a miserable way to live, actually. Praise God for deliverance. And there are a few things that will block the presence of God and short-circuit the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of the church more than the fear of man. But there are a few things that will unleash the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of the church more than the fear of God, a proper fear of God, of reverential awe. We're simply going to walk through this story, and I'm going to highlight a couple of things as the Spirit supplied for the early church, and then we'll make application as we go. And so start in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This really sets the scene. This is one of those general paragraphs that Luke gives us along the way of Acts just to kind of keep you in progress of what's going on as the church is just being, or as the church is exploding in Jerusalem here. And so he says that signs and wonders are regularly being done by the hands of the apostles. In verse 16 says that people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. That's where I said, you know, you start to see some of these things starting to tick, trickle out into Judea a little bit. And it says they were bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so this sets the context. Signs and wonders are being done, and that people are being healed. Demons are being cast out of people. Verse 13 is hilarious. It says none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I say it's hilarious because of the preceding passage. You know, you start hanging around with Christians, folks get dead when you lie. You know, and you're like, wait a minute, I lied yesterday. I'm going to hang back here. Y'all are cool. I like what y'all are doing. Appreciate the power. Thank you for healing my cousin. But I'm going to chill right here. <laughs> None of the rest dared join them. There's real power at work in the church of God. <laughs> and this, this points back to Luke 9 and 10, where Jesus gave the the apostles, the first time when he sent them out, gave them the power to do this. John 14, where he says, look, you're going to do even greater works than me. This is pointing back. The reason I say this, I don't remember Jesus healing anybody with his shadow. Like, anybody need to get healed? See if you can come right up to this shadow right here. Walk through. What? Are you kidding me? That's the kind of impact that this church was having on its city. People saw the kind of power that they had, that the Holy Spirit was working in, that maybe even Peter's shadow will heal my mom, my dad, my son. That's amazing. Now, commentators are all over the place if that actually happened or if it was just superstition. But regardless, people were getting healed. Demons were being cast out. Lives were being changed because of the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit through the local church. Now, it wasn't just that they were focusing on that, though. As you've been seeing over the first four chapters, they, there was a clear focus of the church. Were they doing miracles just for the sake of doing miracles? Or was it to point to the one whom miracles pointed to? You see, the work of the church has to be something more than just the work of the church. It has to point to something greater. It has to point to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that has come through the person and work of Jesus, and now he's ascended, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his people so that we can say, look, this is actually what the kingdom's like. This is the beauty of when Christ reigns. They're not just doing miracles for the sake of miracles. They're saying, look at how great Christ is. 
The early church was committed not to the power of Christ, but to the person of Christ. And when they were committed to the person of Christ, the power of Christ flowed through them by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's main role is to what? To exalt Jesus. Now this is instructive if we'll listen to us, to this word. But John Stott gives some good guardrails because, you know, we've all seen it. People abuse this kind of stuff. Whenever there's power to be had, manipulation is too. Stott says, look, if we trust that Genesis 1-1, we believe the God of Genesis 1-1, then miracles aren't a problem for us. He spoke everything into existence. Not a problem for miracles at that point. But if we take the rest of Scripture seriously, one guardrail has to be that it doesn't happen all the time, because it doesn't. You don't see it in every chapter of the Bible. But we also have to take into the reality that it doesn't, it's not that it never happens either. It does. And so we have to take this seriously. And when the church is committed to the person of Christ, the power of the Spirit flows through it to reach others. He will supply appointed measures to accompany and aid the proclamation of the word. And we see this clearly in the plot turn in verse 17. Verse 17 says, but when you're reading narratives, conjunctions like this are really important to kind of see what's going on in the story. So the first uh, 12 through 16 kind of sets the stage for us and the rising action starts right here. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, consequently who deny the supernatural, and f- were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. So the plot turns here, and the religious leaders of the day, the authorities, were jealous. Why? Because they loved the praise of man, and they weren't getting it. This upstart group called Christians were getting it. And that wasn't cool with them. So what they did was they grabbed them and they threw them in jail. But you only get one sentence of that because the Holy Spirit's the main actor, not the high priest and the Sadducees. But they rose up and threw them in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Why did the Holy Spirit through the angel of the Lord release them? Just because? Because they didn't want them to suffer? Didn't want to be in jail, didn't want to, no. It says, go and stand into the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The whole purpose of the miracle was that they could go and tell of Christ. It's the whole purpose. Because the Holy Spirit is always at work undermining the authorities that compete for the allegiance of Christ. I was sharing the gospel with a guy not too long ago. He's a friend of mine, play ball together and stuff. And uh, he just said, man, I'm just bored. Like, life is just boring, purposeless boring. And tried a lot of different things and just doesn't stick with anything. I said, well, man, why? I mean, he, he kind of knows some things about Christ and about the scriptures. And I was like, what's, so what's, what's holding you back from simply surrendering your life to Jesus and living for him? Well, I don't really trust the Bible. What do you mean? Well, there's some things in the Old Testament that I just can't, can't really make sense of man how can all those animals get on that boat you know fair enough good question yeah it asked a couple more and i said well let me ask you this first i said if i answer all these questions for you will you repent of your sin surrender your life to jesus and follow him all your days 
He thought for a minute and said, no. I said, your issue isn't intellectual then, is it? He said, no. It's an authority issue. When the gospel's preached, it's always an authority issue. It's always an authority issue. And I'm not discrediting intellectual arguments. Sometimes that's real barriers for people. But 99% of the time, it's not intellectual. It's a smokescreen. Because the, the issue is that I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I want to tell me what to do. That's the essence of sin. I love this guy. I want to see him come to faith, you know. So pray for him. But even if he had surrendered his life to Jesus, it wouldn't just be for him. It wouldn't just be just because. God doesn't free people from the bondage of sin just for the sake of freeing them. We sung it earlier. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by the chains. And he says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. He says something like, I rose and went forth and followed thee, right? That's awesome. That's what happens when you give your life to Jesus. That's exact. He breaks loose the chains of sin that has entangled and entwined you for, for your entire life. He breaks those loose, but it ain't just so you'd be like, all right, cool. Now what? You know who wrote that song? Charles Wesley. You know what else he wrote? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. If the freedom that we get from sin doesn't lead to singing and praising and proclaiming the glories of Christ, we need to come back here and say, has the key really been unlocked? Because the Holy Spirit don't just free people from the bondage of sin to be silent. He frees them to go and stand and speak to people all the words of the life that he's just brought you into. And what a life it is. Imagine if Mayor Vivian Jones came here today. She's a mayor of Wake Forest, if you didn't know that. Imagine if she came in here today and asked you, asked you, can you come to town hall tomorrow? I've got an assembly of all of Wake Forest. I need you to tell all of us about this capital L life of Jesus. What would you say? Could you speak all the words of this life? Could you? Would you? Would you do it? Would to God that all of us would take up that, such an opportunity. I've been in 1 John in my personal study, and God has really just been exploding this into my life recently, this concept of, of this life that he has ushered us into. 1 John says this, 1 through 4, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, look at this, concerning the word of Life. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What God has been showing me through this text is that this... God is the one who has experienced life for all of eternity. This is why the Christian faith hinges on a Trinitarian God. If God needed something else to have relationship, then he's not all-powerful and he's not self-sufficient. But because he 
is Father, Son, and Spirit in beautiful, loving community in and of himself. He's experienced that for all eternity. And what that love is, is a self-giving love. Father, oh, Father, Spirit, I love you. Oh, Son, Father, I love you. Oh, Spirit, Father, I love you. And it's this mutual self-giving love that God has been experiencing for all eternity. And then, because of his immeasurable mercy and kindness, he speaks, creates this beautiful creation, and he invites all of creation in on day seven and says, come on in and enjoy, boys and girls. Come on in, giraffes and elephants. Come on in, skies and stars. Come on in and enjoy this self-giving love that I've experienced for all eternity. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's why the seventh day doesn't have a bookend. The first six days have a, and it was night and it was morning the first day. And it was night. The seventh day is wide open for all who would come. And the first human said, no, thank you. I'll do it myself. So all this you created, I'll just take it for myself. Oh, this woman you gave me. And what was meant to be in existence with the presence of God in this beautiful creation of self-giving love quickly turned into, I'm going to get mine's. Praise God, he didn't leave us in that because he would have been perfectly just. What was lost in the garden was life, the text tells us. But God, in his immeasurable kindness, took on flesh, became one of us. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come down from heaven. Jesus says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come so that you may have life and life abundant. Paul says, the first Adam was a living being. The second Adam was a life-giving spirit. And so that all who would turn from their self-taking sin and repent of it, enter into, by faith, union with this life, this Christ, we can now affirm with Paul, it says, I have been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And this life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who, check this, loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what life is, is a self-giving love. Imagine a house, a community, a city where everybody just gave of one of themselves to one another and just loved and took care of one another in such a way. That would be amazing. Holy Spirit frees us from the bondage of our sin to tell people and invite them into this life because that's exactly what the church is supposed to be. A billboard, a window, a, a megaphone into this capital L, life. They get, their, they get their orders, don't even go by Chick-fil-A, get a combo number one with the orange juice on the way to the temple. It's like daybreak. They're like, we're there. Let's go. And they're preaching. They enter in and they begin to teach. Why would they do that? Because they feared God more than man. And the Holy Spirit underwrote their obedience with signs and wonders. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Not only that, in this scene, we also see the Holy Spirit supplies boldness. Supplies boldness for the church that fears God more than man. 
One of the things you see oftentimes is when boldness increases in the church, so does opposition. This axiom is virtually verified all over the globe. Conflict here pinnacles at a meeting between the religious authorities of the day and those whose allegiance is to Christ. So the leaders here in verse uh, 28 says, Look, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now he's, this is referring back to chapter 4 where they said after they healed the man, they were like, Look, don't do this again. Stop it. You can't do this. And the apostles told them then, Look, we got to, like you decide, should we obey God or you? So we're right back at it again one chapter later. He says, look, we told you not to do this. And now you're trying to blame us for this man's blood. This is what happens when you have a religious system built off the fear and praise of man. When things don't go according to the system you set up, there's jealousy that takes place and there's, there's shame that takes place. And the way a graceless religious system sets itself up is, is when you get exposed you actually try to silence the ones who's dragging truth into the light this is really the difference between a fear of man religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ fear of man religion wants to keep sin suppressed wants to keep it hidden wants to keep it in the dark it's a system of self sin management I got this I got this this is mine it ain't really hurting nobody else And since validation comes what, from what others think, anytime anything gets out that may taint your image, you've got to cease it. You've got to make it stop. You've got to silence it. Because you're crushed when you're exposed. Banking on self-righteousness and the praise of others is a miserable, hopeless experience. It's miserable. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that because the worst thing that could have been said about me was when the perfect son of God had to be pinned to a cross because of my sin. Then I'm free to discuss these faults and failures because my validation isn't marked by what others think of me. My validation is marked by what Jesus says of me. And what the gospel, as Tim Keller so eloquently says, is, is that we were so bad that the perfect son of God had to die for us and yet so loved that he chose to die for us. Our righteousness isn't based on self-righteousness. It's based on our faith in Christ, on his righteousness. So now if anyone says anything or you get exposed, you're like, man, you don't even know the half of it. Let me tell you what else God's delivered me from. So that we can truly sing. My chains fell off. My heart went free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You can't wait to tell people about the liberating grace of Jesus. It's so freeing. Disciples had a decision to make. They could obey the commands of Christ back in Luke 12 where he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You ever gotten a situation where it was defend yourself or preach the gospel? Gotten testy either at work or in the neighborhood or in a foreign country somewhere or on the streets somewhere? 
Jesus, Jesus gave them a command here and said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will teach you. And now they're standing, and they said, we told you not to say anything. So what are they going to do? This is the main point of the story. This is the whole point of the story. He, look at what Peter and the apostles said. We must obey God rather than men. We must. We must. This is the main point of this story. It's the main point of your story. It's the main point of North Wake's story. It's the main point of Oaks Church story. We must obey God rather than men. And you may say, well, we don't have Sadducees and stuff trying to silence us today. Really? There are all kinds of voices in our culture claiming authority, trying to silence the witness of Jesus Christ today. You can't say that here. How dare you say that? How can you say Christ is the only way? That's so arrogant of you. Got that one last week. No. We have commands from our God. I have freed you to speak of this life. So the question becomes, will we obey God or will we fear man? And the beauty of it is, is when we take these steps of obedience, we surrender our own wills to God's will. You know what happens? The Holy Spirit of God begins to fill you and give you measures of power and boldness that you've perhaps never experienced before. I always got this wrong. I always wanted the boldness on the front end. I wanted all the power and all the boldness so that when I stepped into every conversation, I knew exactly how to answer it. That still ain't come yet. I wish it did. I've been, I had some guys run circles around me a couple times. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's been the times, not when I've been most eloquent in the proclamation of the gospel, that the Lord's really done the most damage in other people's lives. <laughs> it's often when I just humbly accepted my weakness and said, God, I'm just surrendering this to you. And I fumble through stuff. And this doesn't mean don't prepare by any means. It just means his power is made perfect in our weakness. And just by taking a simple act of faith and sharing with somebody, you see somebody cross from death into this life. You know what that does? It gives you a little more boldness the next time. And a little more strength in your sails to keep pressing in, keep going. That God would actually use broken vessels like us to help be conduits of change for the lives of others. That's amazing. That's what happens when you get called and freed into this life. And I want to show you a couple of things of characteristics of what biblical boldness looks like. In, uh, in verse 20, let's see, where's that? Verse 29, Peter and the apostle said, we must obey God rather than men. Verse 30 says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So there, biblical, biblical boldness confronts others in their sin. Hopefully this doesn't come out of arrogance because you yourself has been confronted in your sin every day. <laughs> and so we have to confront others in their sin, but we never leave them there. Look at what the next verse. Verse 31 says, God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he's holding out the hope to the leaders as well. He says, look. Yeah, you killed him. What you meant for bad. Let me show you how God meant it for good, though. He actually did this so that you and I could have repentance. 
so we can have forgiveness of sins. And so true biblical boldness confronts, but it offers real hope. Real hope. Second, it doesn't get angry or defend. This is kind of the point of 1 Corinthians 13, that real love, true love, it doesn't try to defend itself. You give. That's what a life of self-giving love is. You give. You don't defend yourself. You just share the gospel. You preach the gospel. You give them Jesus. Peter gave it to him in two verses. He didn't got to be this long speech. Two verses. Boom. There you go. But he does so in humility. Verse 32, he says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. He says, look, we're witnesses to these things, but really what's going on is this is the Holy Spirit's work in our life. It ain't nothing I've conjured up on my own. Sure, I got to see it. But the boldness and the power that you're seeing done among the church, that's for the Holy Spirit, who he gives to those who obey him. That's amazing. Unfortunately, many people respond to the gospel the same way these guys do. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Now, more than likely... You share the gospel with somebody. You, you, you give the good news of Christ to people in our culture. You're not going to be threatened with death. Yet. Maybe. But. You may be threatened to be silenced. Maybe ostracized in a group of friends you really want to hang out with. But it's amazing, the Holy Spirit actually superintends this situation to have a, an unlikely ally in the midst of all of them. A man named Gamaliel or Gamaliel, however, however. And he's also somebody who's honored by all the people. And because he's honored by all the people, guess what? These religious leaders stop and listen because they fear man more than God. So they stop and listen to this man. They don't want to do anything to disrupt the crowds. So they listen to, to Gamaliel. And what he does is he says, look, boys, calm down. Don't touch them. We've seen this kind of stuff before. There's been insurgents that's come through and tried to start a revolution, this guy named Thutis and, and Judas. Look, they got stamped out pretty quick. If this is a man, man, it ain't going to happen. And you know this, right? If you tried to do anything in your own power, guess what? It's not going to work. It's not. Particularly planning a church. <laughs> I've had many days with the Lord on my knees saying, what's the problem? And he says, you're trying to do it in your own strength. I said, got it. Don't do that, Josh. Or, or, or continuing along a ministry that God has given you here. If you do it in your own strength, it's going to fail. Gamal knows this. He says, look, keep your hands off of them. Because look, he says, if this plan's an undertaking of man, it'll fail. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And in fact, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. That's good. You see, because what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And the result of walking in obedience to God in this, in this, in, in taking up the mantle of boldness to proclaim, look at what it did. It says that they ended up beating them, threatening them, and then releasing them. And verse 41 says, And they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
People who fear man and want praise of man cannot say verse 41. They can't. And this is the power of the gospel at work. Sure, signs and wonders. Sure, people getting freed out of the jail. But you know what's really a miracle also is when people get beaten. And they're like, man, that was awesome. <laughs> I, got to, I got to do that. I was counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. The result is joy in the midst of suffering. And as verse 42 says, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. When we take up these God-appointed measures that the Holy Spirit supplies in obedience, and, and, and when we suffer rejection, when we suffer ostracization, maybe we get a demotion from work. Maybe we do get a punch in the face. Maybe you get a slit to the throat. The result, though, is when we've been led by the Holy Spirit and our whole purpose was to exalt Christ, even in those moments of suffering, we're bringing glory to God. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And there are countless stories after stories after stories after stories. Read books on the martyrs. Read books on the missionaries. Just read through the Gospels. Read through the New Testament. People who suffered at the hands of others, and yet God in turn used it to see people come to faith in Christ all over the place. It's an amazing story here. Simple obedience to the commands of Christ and the power that the Holy Spirit gives in support of the mission. This was a church that Jerusalem couldn't afford to lose. It was. They couldn't afford to have this people leave. They were turning the city upside down in restoration. I remember hearing Mark Lederbach say one time, the church, the, the community should weep if the church closes its doors. Is North Wake that church for Wake Forest? Is Oaks Church that church for North Raleigh? If you shut your doors tomorrow, and you just disbanded and dispersed. Would the community weep? The Holy Spirit will support the mission of the church when we fear God more than man. He will. And you'll get to experience capital L life in abundant measures. In a, in a community of self-giving love, inviting others into it. And, and it, First John shows us, if you're wondering where maybe some joy is lacking... John tells us, God has reserved this joy from, from those who keep, keep the message of the gospel to himself. John says in 1 John 1, 4, he says, and we write these things to you so that our joy will be complete. That's an amazing statement. God has set it up in such a way, this gift, this life of self-giving love, that if you try to withhold anything, he's going to withhold joy from you. <laughs> Especially the life-changing power of the gospel. So where do we start? Well, I would encourage you to start with prayer. Everything that happened in this chapter is a direct response into the prayers of chapter 4, verse 29 and 30. 
After their first encounter with these guys, they, the church got together and it says they lifted their voice together to God in their prayer in verse 29. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their motive is seen in the prayers. We want to exalt Jesus. That's all we want to do. Continue to allow us to speak with boldness and stretch out your hands in signs and wonders to support and undergird this desire you've given us. So I'd say the best place to start is prayer. Next weekend, corporate prayer here, Sunday night, I would encourage all of you to come and pray. Pray verses 29 and 30. Pray like this. And believe that God wants to fill this church and fill you with the same power that he gave them. And then rise and go and do likewise. Because the Spirit's power comes with those who take simple steps of obedience. Fellow church planner out of here, and I'll finish with this. Joey Kraft asked me one time, before we even got started planting Oaks Church, he said, Josh, if God answered your prayers, how many people would hear the gospel and be saved? How many people would see the glory of God and fall at his feet? Man, that was a convicting question. <laughs> it was a particular season in my life where my prayers was about me and direction and, and my kids and, and me, myself, and I, and myself, and me, and me, you know, me monsters. God answered all your prayers. How many people would hear the gospel and be saved? How many people would see the glory of God? How many people would enter into this thing we call life? The Holy Spirit was answering their prayers and working in and through them in amazing ways. And I believe he wants to do the same with each one of you today. Let's pray and ask the Spirit for boldness. Spirit, attest to this word you've beautifully written through the hands of men like Dr. Luke. Thank you for giving us such a witness and a testimony to the truth of the gospel and the spread of the gospel. We've got a sure foundation to put our feet on, God. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, for leaving us in a, a life of just taking and taking and taking and taking and taking and being victims of other taking and taking and taking and taking. Thank you that you came near to us and gave your one and only son so that all who would believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting Life, a life of giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. God, today, uh, if there's any here who does not know this kind of life, would you draw near to them now? Bring conviction to the heart and repentance of sin, of turning from that sin and embracing this life-giving gospel that God has given us in Jesus. And for those today, God, who may be swimming in a joyless pool, 
God, would you open their hearts to repent well of being a taker and see the beauty and the joy that comes from giving. It's at the heart of who you are. And for all of us, God, for all of us, may we none of us leave here unchanged. Let your gospel cut the very depths of our heart. And may it draw us close so we would go and proclaim this beautiful life and trusting, Spirit, that you will support the proclamation of our words in whatever measures you see fit. Do it all for the exaltation and the matchless name of Jesus in whom we can have life and life abundant. Amen.